0: Our God is great, and his name is to be greatly praised. We're going to begin tonight with a call to worship, but before we do, I'd like to welcome you to Midnight from Jerusalem. It is a collaboration between the Congregation of the Word and loveisrael.org. We are very grateful that you take time each week to join us. And as you probably know, we are in a midst of our study. From Megillat Esther, the book of Esther. And later on tonight, we'll begin with chapter six. But for now, I'd like to read a passage from that chapter. Now, normally we have a call to worship frequently from the book of Psalms, some word of praise. But I want to read a very special verse from the section we're going to be studying in a few minutes. And it's found in chapter 6 of the scroll of Esther, and verse 13, where it says in the middle of the verse, If from the seed of the Jews is Mordecai, whom you have began to fall before him, you will not be able to prevail against him, for you will certainly fall before him now this is zarish the wife of wicked haman and also his friends his counselors and they realize something now prophetically we see that this passage of scripture is indeed for the last days it foreshadows a future victory that the Jewish people will have. And here, Zeresh and the friends of Haman, they are prophesying what will be a great day of victory for the Jewish people over their enemies. And this victory is the outcome of a covenantal relationship with God. And this victory for Israel is going to have significant, and glorious implications for all who have a covenantal relationship with God. To the Jew first, and also to the non-Jew, to the Gentile. And this great outcome of this victory of the Jewish people of the nation of Israel over the enemy, and the enemy is all the other nations of the world this victory is going to produce the establishment of the kingdom of God. And that's why it's so unfortunate that there is hatred for the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, and the Jewish people at large. And we're seeing this on an increase. Earlier this week, I did a video from... The book of Isaiah and chapter 41, the second part of that chapter, and I mention in that video because that section of scripture speaks about a future victory, a victory that we're talking about at this time, when God will move mightily in the last days to defend and to bring victory for the Jewish people over their enemies. And the one who's going to do that ultimately is Messiah Yeshua. He's going to be the one that defeats the enemies of Israel, brings Israel to faith in that same gospel message. And when that is accomplished, there is no hesitancy from God's part to establish that kingdom. Good news. But for some reason, there is a growing percent of people that do not like the term Israel, that find fault with the Jewish people in some unique way and will move against them. This is all prophetic. And in our study of the book of Esther, we've seen that what we're learning in this book that was written some 2,400 years ago, well, it has significant implications. It contains a prophetic message for us today on what will be. Sometimes we look at the past to understand the future. Well, now let's look at another portion of God's Word from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy in chapter 6 for the Shema as we pledge our faith to the God of Israel. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 6, beginning with verse 4. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Baruch Shem Kavod, mechuto leolam v'ed. V'yahavta et Adonai Elohecha, be'kol levavcha, u'v'kol mapchecha, u'v'kol... Meodecha Vehayu hadvarim ha ele ashera nokimitzvaha hayom al. Lev vecha. Ve shinna netam de venecha. Ve de bartem baam, be shiptecha, be vetecha of lettacha, vederk, ukshakbecha ukomecha. Uksh ukshartam le ot al yedecha. Vehayu le totafot ben anecha. Uktavtam al. Mezuzot betecha. Uvesharecha. And now, let us move into a time of prayer. Father God, we, we come before you, lifting up your name, thanking you for your perfect character, affirming our commitment to you and to your commitment or to your covenant truth. Lord, we pray that we would walk in fidelity to your word, that we would have a testimony that manifests your presence in our life through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we give you thanks that we know you and that we are known by you. We rejoice in the fact that you have promised that you are going to begin the good work which you have and that you will bring it to its completion. Lord, we, we give you thanks for the confidence, the assurance that, that we have from you, that we will indeed arrive, that we will reach that, that final condition where we reflect perfectly your glory. Lord, we thank you that you redeem human beings by your great love, by your grace, by your mercy, and through the shedding of your only begotten son's blood, that we might know eternal redemption. Lord, we pray tonight, we intercede tonight for those who are struggling, hurting, those who are discouraged, those who are empty, those who who have need. We pray for them. We lift up those by name who, who you have placed upon our heart people that, that we're praying for, people that, that we're ministering to, people that we're helping. Lord, we pray that you would make all of that assistance, that help, those prayers, those, those acts of kindness, those, those gifts that we, we share, that they might be multiplied by you, that they might be made stronger and greater, and that they might truly meet that need and bring about a glorious change, a righteous change in the life of others. Lord, what a privilege it is to be called into your service, to serve you, to minister in your name, to be a blessing to others. And Lord, remind us and open our eyes to to situations that we can be used by you to be a blessing to others. Father, you are good. Your name is great. Your character is perfect. And your love is available through that gospel message. Lord, we confess our sin to you now. We know that we have fallen short of of your call upon our life, that we have rebelled at times, that we have chosen unwisely, we have chosen sinfully at times. And, Lord, we, we repent of that. We confess that as sin. We confess that as displeasing to you. And we ask for your forgiveness, for your mercy for your your spiritual restoration that we might not experience any distance between us and you but what we might experience intimacy and oneness and you, unity and togetherness. Lord we thank you that that you are indeed a God who is rich in mercy abundant in grace that you care for us perfectly and Lord we pray tonight as we we prepare our hearts for your word, for reading it, studying it, Lord, that we might truly hear from you, that it would not be the words of, of man, but rather that you would, would guide the speech, that you would work within these, these words, that your revelation might be made known through, through our study tonight. For this we pray in the blessed name of Messiah Yeshua. Amen. God has began to move in this situation, what we've been studying in the book of Esther. We see that there is a man who has, has arrived near the throne of the king, that he has received the signet reign of that king, and in essence, he is leading. He is the one who is making decisions for the most part within this empire. And this man is an anti-Semite. He hates the Jewish people, and he stands in opposition to God's will because he has put his will above God's. This is a satanic attribute. This is how the enemy thinks. And we need to be very careful not to be deceived, not to buy into this delusion where we think that that God is for my will. He is not. God is for the perfection of his will. And God is leading every true believer to submit to that and to remove ourselves from the desires of our flesh, which so frequently is is called destiny by false teachers. It's time to get serious and to be instruments of godly change. Take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Esther and chapter six. Now, I made mention a moment ago, God is at work. He is moving to bring about change. And what were the two chief catalysts in this? First of all, it was the fast of Esther. And how she not only fasted, but the the women attendants that were with her. And also she encouraged Mordecai and all the Jewish community in Shushan, the capital, to fast those three days. And as we've learned, there is no such thing as a biblical fast without prayer. So fasting and praying these three days and then the second catalyst is this sacrificial, this submissive attitude and behavior that that Esther, Hadassah, her Hebrew name, that, that she exemplified. And when we fast, and pray, when we are led by truth, and we submit to that truth, and we recognize godly authority, and we move in order to have God lead and be present in our lives, in our situation, we can expect we should have assurance that God's going to do something. And we see the beginning of the effects of this prayer, and fasting, and submissiveness, and obedience, we see this at the very beginning of chapter 6. So look there with me. Esther chapter 6 beginning in verse 1 where it says, "Bailah hahu." Now, normally, we think of the term "bayom hahu" on that day. This is a term of judgment. But here, we don't have "bayom hahu" But rather we have Balala Hahu on that night. Now, night is an important term biblically. We know that in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, this this chapter that that is dedicated to Passover truth, when God moved to bring his judgment, his destruction on the, the Egyptians, he did so in the midst of night. And what we see here with this term, in that night, God began to work similarly to bring about a redemptive outcome for the Jewish people. So we read in verse 1, On that night, the sleep of the king, and this next word, literally, before the sleep of the king, in Hebrew, the verb comes first, before the noun. So the sleep of the king was was wandering, meaning it's a word like a no man who's going from here to there, but never really arriving at one primary place and this is what 's happening the king it 's an idiom the the sleep of the king was was wandering about he could not sleep that night now the the emphasis of the text this is uh out of the ordinary, and the fact that he could not sleep and what comes from that clearly shows God is at work, and we're going to see, beginning this chapter, all these things that were were bad, these things that that appear to have a negative outcome for, for Mordecai, for Esther, for the Jewish people at large. God's going to move that he's going to use things in order to bring about a godly change. So the sleep of the king we could just say in an idiomatic way departed that night. And he said to bring a book and the next word speaks of the next word speaks of that which is remembered. So, the book of, of making mention, the book of memory. So, the events that are written down in history, it's a historical annual. And the end of, of this verse, where it says, or this phrase, Divrei ha'yamin. Now, Divrei ha'yamin is the same phrase that were translated into English as chronicles. We have the first book of Chronicles and the second book of Chronicles. So here within this empire, they had a similar set of writings, probably many volumes that they wrote down the history they reminded about, the significant events that took place each day in the kingdom. They wrote them down in this historical annuals, this, this book of Chronicles called the book of of memories, we might say. And we find that, that they were reading it before the king. Now, you say, how does this show that God is at work? Well, God is not giving the king, Ahasuerus, his normal sleep. And there's something out of the ordinary because we don't see him doing this at any other time. But he gives the order to bring the the annuals of history, this chronicle of what took place in the empire. And he asks, commanded literally, that it would be read by by others to him. And the implication is history oftentimes can be boring hearing just the, the list of events and that this would make him tired and it would cause him to to be able to sleep. But what was read, and all of this is to show the providence of God. God is at work in this event, in all the events of this book. God is constantly present. You may not see him, his name might not appear in the book of Esther, but he's there working working according to his goodness. So we read here in the next verse, verse 2, And it was found written that Mordecai declared concerning Bictana and Teresh. Now, we have two individuals. These men, Biktana and Terish. Who were they? Well, we keep reading. It says the two, and it's word for eunuchs. These were two high officials that were trusted. They were were responsible for keeping. It says here that they were the eunuchs, or sometimes Bibles just simply say officials of the king. Meshomre hasaf saf is the threshold. It's the entrance in other words, and they were the ones that were the security guards, we might say, that that would check and make sure that everyone who crossed that threshold that entered into where the king was, that, that they had these two men's permission. They were responsible for the king's life, and what we're going to see is that, that they betrayed their position. Why? We read, who were seeking, they sought in the past, to stretch forth their hand, that is a term of assassination. They sought to assassinate the king, King Ahasuerus. Now, we read this, and, and Mordecai, told this to Esther, who told it in the name of Mordecai. And this fact was written down in these annuals, this historical record in their book of Chronicles. And it was investigated, it was saw that was true, and these two men were put to death, executed, for this assassination plot against Ahasuerus, the king. Now, it all ended well. Mordecai showed his faithfulness to the king, but nothing was done, and this whole event, although it was written down as we see here, the king was never told about it. This was the first time that he ever heard of assassination plot against him. Who were the culprits, and... Who was the one who literally saved his life? And let me ask you a question. Do you think that this is a a coincidence? There is no coincidence. This is the providence of God, using the right thing at the right time for the right outcome. That's providence. God moving, doing, utilizing, whatever it may be, at the right time, the right thing, that's going to produce the right outcome. So this was told to the king. Now look at verse 3. And the king said, what was done precious? Now the word yakar can mean uh, something that is expensive, precious, dear, something that has value. It could be monetary value, or it could be something of of personal that you care deeply that you give something that 's meaningful, so the king says, You know what expensive what what dear thing, what precious thing, and great was done to Mordecai, literally for Mordecai concerning this now the king recognized this This Mordecai, he acted in order to save my life. And what was done in behalf of that? Now, obviously, the king would want to encourage other people, if they knew of some plot, some threat of the empire, the king, someone else, the queen, whoever, that that would be against the king's will, that he would want people to to inform, to tell, to give that intelligence, that information. So he says, what was done to to reward him, in other words? And look at the end of verse 3, it says, the young attendants of the king, they said, and they were the servants, they said nothing was done with him. There was not done with him anything. He got nothing. Verse four. Now remember where we ended last week. We saw that that it was advised by the wife of Haman and his counselors, his dear friends, those who who he loved, that he would do something, that he would build gallows, a large place. 50 cubics high, in order to hang Mordecai, the Jew, upon it. And then he could go to that second night festival, that banquet with him and the king and Esther, just these three, and that he could go there with a glad heart, having committed murder, the murder of his enemy. Now, Mordecai was not an enemy of Haman, Mordecai was faithful to God. But here's the important principle, and this is taking place, it's beginning now in our days, it's going to get worse. When someone's faithfulness to God is going to be, re- be viewed by others as, as making you an enemy to them, making you an enemy of that, that nation, that state. That that political leadership, that, that regime, that administration, that's what's going to happen. When you walk in obedience to God, you will become an enemy of those who belong to the world. And there's going to be punishment. This is what it's saying here. Mordecai, because of his faithfulness to God, is now going to be hung. This is what Haman's doing. He heard the counsel of his friends. He's made this gallow already to hang Mordecai upon it. So now look at verse 4. The king said, who is in the courtyard? And Haman, this is Haman literally, he came to the courtyard of the inner house of the king, the king's palace. So he's in the, the, excuse me, outer, the Hatzer Ha Chitzon. So the outer courtyard of the, the, the king's palace. Word says, Ha Chitzoni, Hitzonit. And it says, to speak to the king, why? in order to hang Mordecai upon the tree, the gallows, which he had prepared for him. So we see that, that Haman, and think it for a moment, what time is it? It's time to be sleeping. It's in the middle of the night. But once Haman heard this counsel, He gave the order for these these gallows to be built, these high 50 cubic gallows to be built in order to hang Mordecai. He built them. They were complete. They finished in the middle of the night, and Haman could not wait, could not wait to get Mordecai on that rope and bring him to his death. So in the middle of the night, he's there in the outer courtyard. And what's he doing? Waiting until things uh, open up and he can make this request to the king. Now, he's there in the middle of the night. He doesn't know. The king's having the trouble sleeping. The palace is still up in the middle of the night. That night, remember how verse chapter 6 begins in verse 1, on that night. So he arrives, and everyone's awake. So the king said, who's in the courtyard? Haman had come to the, the outer courtyard of the king's palace. Outer is important. The inner one would have been impossible. Without taking that risk, so he's in the outer courtyard, the Chatsir and he's there to request permission to hang Mordecai. Verse, verse five. He asked the king Achashverosh, as who's in the courtyard? And now these same young attendants they say unto him, unto the king, behold, Haman is standing in the courtyard. Now I put a a circle around that word standing. Why? Because it's in that rare construction. The present tense in the Hebrew, which always makes a passage emphatic. It's marked in a way to cause the reader to see significance. He's there standing. In the courtyard to make this request. Furthermore, we read, look at the end of verse, verse five. And the king said, Yavo, meaning, let him come, invite him in. Verse six. And Haman came. And the king said to him, What should be done? Literally, malasot. What to do with a man? Whom the king delights dearly with with a precious thought. So, what to be done with the man, Baish, not Baish, with a man, no, with the man. It makes it emphatic. Whom the king delights with, with great, with dearness, with great, great precious thoughts for him. And Haman thought in his heart, literally he says in his heart, to whom does the king delight? Who will the king demand delight to do something precious more than me? Now I underline that in my Bible. Why? Because it speaks of the pride of Haman. Pride will go before fall. What we see is Haman thinking, of all the people, I'm certainly the one that he delights in more than anyone else. And that he'll want to do something precious for me, something honorable, something of significance. That's what that word yakar means. And it's most informing what he answers. Now, I made mention several weeks ago that Haman has that that blasphemous, that satanic character. And what is that? Well, I share with you that in Isaiah chapter 14, we learn that Hasatan, Satan, what he wants is to put his empire over that of God's. He wants to be God. And what we see here is, is that Haman He wants to be king. And how do we know this? Well, when he thought that he was going to be the recipient of of the king's delight, notice what he says. Verse 7. Haman said to the king, A man whom the king delights with, with endearment in a precious way, in an expensive way, this is what should be done, verse 8. Let them bring lavush. This would be the, the garment, the attire, we might say. And then we have the word malchut, which is king, or in this case, royal. Let them bring the royal garment, is what he's saying, which the king dresses in it. So he wants the royal garments, not just just. The king's clothes, but the royal one in an official way. When the king wants to present himself as king, he's looking for those garments. Let them be brought. And he says, also, the horse which the king has set upon it, which, he says, in addition, let there be given the crown, the royal crown, Upon his head, so he says, What you should do to show your delight to this one that you find is precious, that you want to do something extravagant. This is what you should do you should have him clothed with the kingly garment, put him upon the horse that the king rides upon, and also put the crown, that royal crown, upon his head. And and not only that, but something else, he says, verse nine, and and set the the clothes the horse up by the hand of one of the servants of the king, and not just any servants, but it says, Ha me, the nobleman. So let it be given to the nobleman, one of the noblemen of the king's servants all of this the garment and the horse and let them clothe the man which the king delights in in his pleasure with in his precious in endearment so that's what he wants he wants also for not only to be set upon the the horse clothed in the royal garment crowned upon his head the royal crown But he also says concerning these noblemen that they should uh, lead him riding the horse in the court or the square of the city and let them proclaim before him, thus the king will do to the man whom he delights in a precious way, in a significant way. So this is what he's saying. Now, why would he be asking for such treatment? Very simple. He wants to become the king. And he wants the nobleman to prepare everything like he's the king. The king's crown, the king's garments, the king's horse, the king's officials. That they put all of this upon him and march him through, causing him to ride upon the king's horse and to proclaim this, is how the king treats the one who he delights in he wants the public to get used to seeing him with that crown in those garments on that horse and being being given accolades he wants to think of himself as the the one who will take over the crown that's his agenda whether One knows that or not, that's what's going through Haman's mind. Now look at verse 10. Now, Haman is prideful. And when you're prideful, you're going to easily be deceived. And therefore, he did not have discernment. His pride clouded up his ability to discern or to see reality. But It was made real to him when the king says, now look at verse 10. The king said to Haman, quickly, what an important word, quickly, take the garment and the horse, and just as you have said, thus you shall do to Mordecai the Jew. Very important, to Mordecai the Jew. Who sits at the gate of the king, remember nearly every time there are a few exceptions, but normally when when Mordecai is spoken of it's spoken he 's spoken of as the Jew who sits at the gate of the king, meaning he 's loyal that he 's someone who gives correctly the king 's judgment the king 's counsel, he enforces the king's rules. This is what the scripture is telling us. And notice, in a moment, we're going to see, because of this great act of of sharing this information about the assassination attempt, attempt, we're going to see that, that the king's going to order Haman to do this to Mordecai. And this is going to totally surprise him. But ask a question. What does this honor bring about in Mordecai's life? The answer may surprise you. He says, you do just as you have said to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate of the king and do not allow anything to fall, meaning be undone, in other words, do every detail that you have, have said exactly like this. Now, that was an order of the king. No one can refuse such an order. Haman had to do it. And, and this would be just just emotionally torturous to Haman to, to, to pay honor to the one. That he had come and don't you see the the irony of this here we have Haman wanting to kill Mordecai and now the king is saying pay him this great honor and instead of carrying out his his desire in assassinating Mordecai he's got to pay him this public honor Verse 11, and Haman took the garment and the horse and he clothed Mordecai and he led him riding upon that horse. He rode him in the, the square of the city and he proclaimed before him, thus the king will do to the man in whom he delights greatly, preciously, in a a large way. So, Haman, he had no choice. He had to do this act. Now, what we should glean from this is something very simple. God is at work. This is going to foreshadow something. It is foreshadowing the demise of Haman. He's not going to be successful. What he's about, what he wants to achieve, isn't going to happen. Instead of Mordecai and all the Jewish people being put to death, what's going to happen? Mordecai is going to be exalted. Why? Mordecai is faithful to God. Mordecai puts God first above all things. Mordecai lives sacrificially. Don't forget this. The fact that Mordecai would not bend the knee and bow to Haman, this could have brought about a death penalty. He was disobeying the king, but he was obeying God. This sacrificial faithfulness says a great deal about, about Mordecai, but also says something about God that God defends his faithful ones. Look now to verse verse 12. Now, the first part of verse 12 I emphasized. In my Bible, I highlighted highlighted this why? Well, to be paid such an honor. I mean, this was what Haman wanted. More than anything else, this this dean esteemed, this honor having such Royal garments placed upon him and the crown upon his head, and riding that horse and, and being proclaimed thus before all the citizens of Shushan in the capital and the court or the square of the city. This is what he wanted. But notice all this attention, these accolades, this honor didn't change Mordecai. Why? Look, if you would, to verse 12. It says, and Mordecai returned to the gate of the king. That's where he was previously, and that's where he returns to. This didn't change him whatsoever. Here's the message. Don't allow the things of this world to change you. Whether they be honorable things, whether it be wealth, whether it be prestige, whatever it might be, don't allow the material to change you. Be faithful to your calling. Be faithful to what you're supposed to be doing. Be about your work, regardless of anything else. So Mordecai returned to the gate of the king. But notice, Haman. This foreshadows what's going to happen. But Haman, so important. But Haman, he... And the word "dachuf" is a word for something urgent. This is "nitchaf." This is like to be driven with urgency. This is to do something urgently. And what it was? Well, let's just read it. It says, "But Haman was driven to his house." How? Avo morning vachapui rosh. Now chapui is a word for for covering. And what it is, and you've seen people sometimes that, that are accused of a crime, usually the fact they behave this way shows that they're guilty. Not always, but, but frequently. They're ashamed of themselves, and therefore they cover up their face with some, some garment, with their jacket, whatever. They don't want their face to be seen because they're so, so humiliated. This is what is happening to Haman. The fact that he had to do that act to all people, to Mordecai, the Jew whom he hated and wanted to remember the context. He's there at the king's compound, in that outer courtyard, to request permission to hang Mordecai. And what's happening? The king wants to praise him. The king wants to treat him preciously. So we see this change. At one time, the king and Haman, they were in agreement. Haman would lead, the king would follow. That's what Haman wanted. But now there's a break. The king is thinking one way and Haman is thinking another. Why? Prayer, fasting, submissiveness, Obedience, faithfulness of Esther, of Mordecai, and the people, the Jews of Shushan, who have also fasted. So he went home mourning. This was like death, as though so someone died. And he was humiliated with his, his head covered. Verse 13. And what did Haman do? What says, Haman told to Zeresh. Zeresh is his wife, and to all of his loved ones, all of his friends, and all whom whom he called. So he got a whole bunch of people around him, and, and he told them what had happened. And notice what it says. His wise ones and his wife, Zeresh, They said to him, now notice there's a change. The the previous times when it's mentioned the friends uses the term ohev, ohev is love, it's in the plural here for loved ones. But there's a change. Now they're called chachamim, wise ones. And what causes this change in language? Anytime there's a change, in language we should see it as important as having great significance it's a clue from the biblical texts and why are they wise because they know something now the question is are they going to are they going to respond with wisdom and and we see an indication that they will why once again verse 13 they said to him, who the wise ones and his wife they said to him, zera hayudim, if from the seed of the Jews, Mordecai is mordecai a sheer if whom you have began to fall before him lo to lo you will not be able, you will not prevail against him. Ki ti tipol, very important expression. Same word, different construction, but same word twice, which means you will certainly, you will utterly, and this word ti tipol, it is, you will certainly fall before him. They're called wise because they are speaking about a future defeat of Haman because the Jewish people they're going to find victory in the last days every Jewish person no a remnant this is important information this is to tell us that there's a future day of victory for for Israel against those enemies who are following the purpose the plans the objective of of Hasatan, of Satan. And this is why we we don't teach, as so many others do within Christianity, not all, but a growing percent. And perhaps when we look at, at Christianity at large, it is an overwhelming view. Now, I talk to people about this and because they come from good Bible-believing teachers, teach Bible-believing congregations that teach the Word of God, they, they are kind of insulated. But they don't realize that most mainline denominations in America and throughout the world and the Catholic Church by and large all teach a, a type of, to a certain degree, replacement theology a theology that says that that god has no unique relationship any longer with the land of israel with the jewish people all of that has been has been set aside and it's a growing and hear this it's a growing view within the evangelical world now it didn't surprise me when we look at some of the mainline denominations and catholicism that we see These mainline denominations and Catholicism really isn't a a movement based upon the authority and the inerrancy of the Word of God. They allow councils and meetings and individuals and their interpretations and their desires and society and changes in culture to influence them. They see the Bibles almost as a fluid document that needs to be reinterpreted in light of culture, in light of of future things and what's going on even in the present. So that's how they do. But it is most alarming that we're seeing a growing number of evangelicals. And what is so unfortunate is that many of these evangelical leaders, They are are put forth through some of the leading magazines and and institutions and such as, as great biblical scholars when they are not because they do not base their teachings upon prophetic truth. We see there's going to be a great victory. Messiah taught this. So when you're sitting under a leader that says Jerusalem has no more future. And and God's not going to do anything in regard to that land. This goes against what God has promises. God has promised. So let's look again. Look at verse thirteen. Very important statement. Zeresh and these wise ones they say, if and this could be mekevan. It's the word im in Hebrew, but it could have the meaning one of the. One of the the meanings of this word "em" is oftentimes understood by the phrase "mikayvan," which is sense. Sense from the seed of the Jewish people is Mordecai, whom you have began to fall before him. You will not prevail against him, for you will utterly fall before him. Verse 14, our last verse. Now, as this was going on, what happens? There was a knock at the door. Those ones who were sent by the king, because what's happening that night? What's going to take place? Well, that evening is the second banquet of Queen Esther. When she is promised to reveal her petition and her request before the king, to do so only before the king and Haman. Only these two are invited. So we read in verse 14, while they were still speaking with him, Zeresh and these wise counselors, it says, while they were still speaking, the the eunuchs of the king, his servants, they arrived and they hurried to bring Haman to the banquet this this event this party which esther had prepared so we already see that god is at work that haman and the king there is a breaking in in this unity that was prior and what broke it what brought the change well i'm going to say this this is the third time in this message But you need to not only hear it, but adapt this truth to your life. What caused this beginning of change? Mordecai being prophesied as going to be exalted. Haman prophesied he's going to fall and not be prevailing. What caused this? The fasting, the praying. The unity within the Jewish community, the body coming together in prayer and fasting. Mordecai and and Esther being submissive, obeying the revelation, submitting to the purposes of God. When we do that, we can expect change. Well, things are going to get very interesting as we move into these last few chapters of Megillat Esther, the scroll of Esther, we're gonna see more and more the providence of God to bring about changes, and here's what's so, so significant, to bring about changes that only God could bring about. So let me close by asking you a question. Do you want changes? Godly changes, righteous changes, holy changes, changes that glorify God in your life. You can't do it. You don't have the authority. You don't have the power. You don't have the resources. You don't have the intelligence. You can't control anything. But God has the power, the authority, the ability, the wisdom, the knowledge, and the the mindset to bring about. His will. Therefore, submit to him. Agree with him. Walk with him. Pray to him. Fast to him. Allow God to be the Lord of your life. And then you will begin to experience the providence of God in your circumstances. This is what we have seen. This is what we have said. And this is what we're going to see in a very clear and demonstrative way in the rest of this book of Esther. Well, I'll close with that. Until next week, shalom from Israel.